I was attending a meeting of the Interfaith Roundtable this week. The topic was speaking the truth. And I was a little anxious going in because I went in with an agenda. I'm convinced that one of the most important elections in our county for some time can happen this Tuesday when we decide the Democratic candidate for prosecuting attorney. I've learned through working with Friends of Restorative Justice just how important this office is. The prosecuting attorney decides which cases are prosecuted, how plea bargains are offered, what kind of bail is allowed. These decisions and the amount of discrimination in the office. <clears throat> Prosecutors' offices are rife with discrimination, as we've learned in the movie Just Mercy, as well as other places. These decisions deeply shape the lives of especially black and brown and poor people in our county. The young multiracial, multi-faith coalition Liberate Don't Incarcerate has a scorecard on the prosecutor's race. And I went to the Interfaith Roundtable meeting with a call to encourage my fellow faith leaders to look at the materials that Friends of Restorative Justice and Liberate Don't Incarcerate have produced about this prosecutor's election. I wasn't super comfortable with the idea of pushing my agenda on this group, even though I had the encouragement of the director to do so. When we went to our breakout rooms, one of my colleagues talked about how he was preparing materials for Sunday on the Jonah story and how we need to have the confidence to speak our call like Jonah. In that moment, it was a word that I needed to hear. When we went back into the main group, I spoke first and shared what I had to say. People were grateful for the information. One of my favorite memories from childhood, I was about eight, was a summer all church retreat when we focused on the story of Jonah. Jim Snyder, a big athletic man from my church, and I acted out the story. There was a lake at the camp where we were retreating, and I was taken out into the lake in a boat. Then I was thrown out of the boat into the water. I could swim. Jim, already in the lake, swam up to me and grabbed me and swam away from the shore, keeping his big body between my tiny one and the eyes of the congregation. Then after a while, he swam back to the shore and threw me up from the water onto the beach. My mother and I talked about this story this week, and she also remembers it viscerally. The story of Jonah has remained one of my favorites ever since. It's a story that rewards many different kinds of attention. It's one of the few Old Testament stories that actually works okay as a children's story. But it's also an anomaly in the Bible as a text that bridges the prophetic writings and wisdom literature through folklore with its fantastical fish who can keep a human alive for three days and three nights. A plant that grows in a day and is felled by a worm in a night. And a whole city that engages in species-inclusive repentance. It works as an allegory, folklore, and prophecy. There are strong theological, ecological, ethical, and rhetorical arguments. Each different character in the story has something to teach us. Let me briefly review the plot 
so we have it in mind. God comes to send Jonah to Nineveh with a word. Jonah, for reasons we later learn, have to do with his focus on the nation of Israel against other nations, doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he doesn't want God to forgive the Ninevites. So Jonah takes the boat to Tarshish to hide from God. The boat encounters a storm and the sailors interrogate Jonah, realize he is the likely cause of the storm and throw him overboard. The sea calms and Jonah is taken inside a great fish sent by God. Jonah spends three days inside the fish and then is thrown up on the shore. God again calls him to go to Nineveh. It's a large city. Jonah walks a day towards its center and then proclaims, only 40 days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. The city repents, fasting and putting on sackcloth and renouncing evil ways and violent behavior. The fast and the sackcloth are for everyone in the city, including all the animals. God saw the efforts of the Ninevites and reconsiders overthrowing the city. Jonah is predictably petulant and asks God just to kill him right there. He leaves the city, makes himself a shelter and sits down to see what will happen to Nineveh. God causes a kikion plant to grow up and provides shade for Jonah to soothe his frustration. The plant makes Jonah happy. The next day, God sends a worm to destroy the plant and then a scorching east wind and a hot sun to beat down on Jonah. Jonah again begs for death. The story ends with this beautiful question asked of Jonah. You are concerned for the kikion plant, which has not cost you any effort and which you did not grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. So why should I not be concerned for Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, to say nothing of the animals? In the time that remains, I want to look at this story from the perspective of a few of its characters, with a mind towards the future of our church and county. I love how the message of this story changes depending on whose shoes we seek to stand in. I'll start with Jonah, who my friend from the Interfaith Roundtable suggests teaches us confidence in our message. I might need to talk to him about that interpretation again. If Jonah is confident about something, it is actually that Nineveh shouldn't be saved. He seeks to run away from God, really never a great idea, but especially in folklore. And even in the face of a whole city that repents, Jonah remains obstinate. God switches to the natural lesson of the Kikion plant and asks Jonah why God should not be concerned with Nineveh. But Jonah has given no indication that he is relenting in his anger. The question that ends the story does not have a sure response from Jonah. He might still be angry with God. Our current lives also have a lot of room for judgment. I know that I am unrepentant in my attitude towards our current government, and perhaps also our current prosecutor. 
I do not expect that they can change. The one thing, though, that Jonah does right is obey God when the time to prophesy to Nineveh comes. I wouldn't like to think about what torment God would have found for Jonah had he not given Nineveh the message. But Jonah did do it, even if reluctantly. Obedience is modeled throughout this story, particularly by the non-human characters. God commands the kikion plant to grow in a day, and it does. God commands the worm to wither the plant, and it does. God commands the east wind to blow, and it does. God doesn't need to command the sun to shine down brightly. The sun is already obedient. All of these characters are personified in the text. All are seen as having agency and employing that agency to follow God's ways. The next character I want to consider is the fish, which I'm going to assume is a whale. If Jonah's whale was a blue whale or a humpback whale, it couldn't have swallowed him. These whales are baleen whales, and they have big plates rather than teeth. They take in huge gulps of water and small plants and animals, and then expel the water through these large baleen plates, keeping the food for themselves. But even if a human could survive the process of going into the mouth and then surviving all the water being pushed out the baleen plates, the throat of these whales is only about 10 centimeters wide. A sperm whale has a larger throat, but also teeth to avoid. There is basically no possible way that a human could survive inside a whale for three days. The only other story in the Bible which parallels Jonah's use of animals as characters is Balaam's donkey that God grants speech to. But a talking donkey is nothing compared to a whale that is able to protect Jonah for three days. This accomplishment is incredible. But we do have many stories of whales protecting humans and engaging in other kinds of cross-species concern. So one of the lessons, again, is this lesson of obedience. The whale obeys even against their capacity. The other lesson that the whale offers is one of memory. While in the whale, Jonah has his only introspective moment in our story and offers a prayer of thanksgiving to God. The whale allows Jonah to remember, both by giving him time and a place to think. And we also know that whales have good memories, a variety of cultures and languages, and that they engage in passing on knowledge to their offspring, from mother to daughter and mother to son. But perhaps the most resonant character in this story for us now is the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, a city three days walk across. For an Israelite like Jonah, 
going to Nineveh wasn't just going to a foreign city that he didn't care about. Jonah might have also feared for his safety. One analogy might be a Jewish person going to Berlin in 1936, expecting repentance. Another might be a black person going to Washington, D.C. in 2020. Remarkably, Nineveh listens. There is a great deal of hope to be found in thinking of ourselves in the place of Nineveh in this story. It does seem like there are communities in this country, like Portland, or even at moments ours here at Shalom, that are open to repentance now more than we ever have been. There is also a lot of humility to be found in realizing how complete the repentance of the Ninevites was. It makes sense to step back for a moment at this point and remember that Nineveh was not a part of Israel, but that Jonah is sent by God there. Robert Alter says, the God that Jonah has such difficulties with because of his Israelite nationalist mindset is not chiefly the God of Israel, but the God of the whole world, of all creatures, large and small. God is not a God you can pin down to national settings. God exercises magisterial control over storm winds, fish, livestock, and plants, as well over human beings of all tribes and nations. And God asks the recalcitrant prophet why he should have pity for an ephemeral plant, but not a vast city of clueless human beings and their beasts. The message of Jonah, in spite of who Jonah is, is one of universal mercy. It is fitting that the book ends with a question. The theologian Karl Rahner developed an idea called the supernatural existential. This idea says that every person has inside them a natural openness to hearing God's call, a yearning and capacity <clears throat> for meaning that orients us towards God. In the song that I played for you earlier, I connected this capacity of everyone to hear God's song to all of creation, especially to whales who hear each other's song. I believe that all creatures are similarly attuned to God, that there is a unified thread of love that connects all creatures to each other and to God. This orientation is not just about mystical, metaphysical connection. It's also about obeying God's call, which is always a call to justice, a call to repentance, a call to mercy, a call to resistance. And this brings us to the animals. The humans dress the animals up in sackcloth. And they're also expected to make sure that the animals observe the fast. But the inclusion of the animals in these acts of repentance shows both that the Ninevites expect the animals to matter and that they expect that this is also what God thinks. 
when we orient our world towards justice, when we hear God's call, it is a message that we can all respond to one way or another. And this message that is shot through our whole universe is also one that we can help each other respond to. For we all have a response. We all have a call. We all have something to say. I encourage us all to listen to God's music playing over our heads, to hear this call, and to respond. Amen.